One of my favorite ways to cool off in the summer heat of Italy is to take a break for a scoop or two of its famous gelato. The secret of Italian gelato is to keep it simple, fresh ingredients, and it's made daily. Friends from Italy join us in the hour ahead to help us know how to make every calorie worth it. You can do research on gelato three times a day. It's healthy. There's a delicious reason a good Italian market has so many different kinds of pasta for sale. Each pasta's shape goes with a different kind of condiment or dressing or broth. Fred Potkin explains why it's sacrilege to use the wrong kind of sauce on the special pastas you find in each region of Italy. And Jeff Biggers recommends what to explore on Italy's other big island, Sardinia. We're really kind of at the beginning of a real revival of cultural tourism on the island. You're invited. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Why does the gelato they sell in Italy's version of an ice cream parlor taste so much better than what you usually find in your local supermarket? We'll find out in just a bit. And author Jeff Biggers recommends the island of Sardinia. It's where artsy seaside towns, rustic hidden beaches, and hillside farm stays bring you an entirely different side of Italy in a culture that dates back to the Bronze Age. That's all in the hour ahead. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with Fred Plotkin. The Italian government awarded Fred a Cavaliere title for promoting Italian culture around the world. Recently, Fred and I updated his book, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, into a guide we're calling Italy for Food Lovers. Fred joins us from his home in New York to coach us on the great variety of pastas you can enjoy all over Italy. Buongiorno, Ricardo. Thank you for joining us. You know, I've, I've known you long enough to know that you are a self-described pleasure activist. How's that? I know that you're not saying you're a hedonist. I mean, there's quite a distinction between a pleasure activist and a hedonist, isn't there? Yes, the emphasis here is not only on pleasure, but on activism. In other words, activating all your senses so that you fully engage with music, with wine, with food, with a conversation, with scenery, whatever it is. By engaging your senses, you derive more pleasure. Well, that is pretty fundamental to my approach to travel. You know, what you get out of it is, to a certain degree, what you bring to it. And this is why I'm so excited about our book. And having worked on it with you, I just love the potential for helping people become pleasure activists. Today, we've got uh, time to talk about something special in the book, or special for anybody going to Italy, or special for anybody who likes to eat pasta. Pasta must be the perhaps the world's favorite food. Certainly, it's, it's Italy's favorite food, isn't it? It is my favorite food. In fact, my very first cookbook was only a pasta cookbook. Yeah, well, every country has noodles, but what's special about Italy's noodles? Italians know how to use their noodles. Um, pasta goes back to ancient times and was originally rolled out. It was just a combination of flour and water, and they would cut sheets and ribbons and so on in Rome and elsewhere that produced pastas that were beaten and fresh. Dried pasta came about in the 13th century near Amalfi and Salerno. And when you discovered that you could dry pasta and preserve it, it became a different kind of food. So we have fresh pasta, we have dried pasta. We have noodles, but we also have what's called pasta di pieno, filled pasta. So ravioli are a famous okay. example of filled pasta. Now, Fred, when you're traveling in Italy, you encounter mostly dry stored pasta, right, that needs to be boiled. Do you, do you encounter pasta fresca? Absolutely. And most regions have some version of pasta fresca. 
They're the very famous ones like ravioli and tortellini. Oh, filled ones, yeah. The ones that are flat and then uh, little pouches and you... You fold them over. Right. So, for example, yeah. you make two sheets of pasta. You put filling in, let's say well, it's course. cheese okay. and pork. You put the top sheet on, you cut it with a wheel, and you create ravioli. There you go. And for as far as the the dry stored pasta, the what pasta pasta shuta? Pasta shuta, dried pasta, the most famous are spaghetti and macaroni. Yeah. But there are hundreds of varieties. So you got so the long tiny. ones and you got the short ones. Uh, right. And then you got the a few little tricks, you know, ini and oni. You can guess is it short and big or is it long and skinny? True. And all of this. But the thing is that certain are very tiny like like um pastina is for babies. And it's their first pasta, and you have it with broth. But then there are enormous pastas like schiaffoni, which are just an enormous shell or shape. And each pasta's shape goes with a different kind of condiment or dressing or broth. So that's a, that's an interesting point, because I know when you, for instance, when you go to Belgium and you order a beer, it's got to be served in the right glass. And if they don't have the right glass, they're reluctant to serve you that beer. I mean, it's a big deal. Do you think the pasta is really a, like taken seriously, the shape of the pasta for the sauce? And, and why would that matter? Absolutely. Let's take Orequete, the little ear-shaped ancient pasta from Puglia. They are small, but they, they're shaped like an ear, so they can hold a little bit of minced fish or minced pork or vegetables that are minced. In other words, that it would neatly fit in there. If you were to put a heavy bolognese sauce on that, it wouldn't work. <laughs> Whereas tagliatelle, which are longer and you can twirl them, hold bolognese meat sauce much better. That's just one example. We have a joke on our TV. We shot a lot of TV shows in Italy, and we had a guide once that when we did something that was wrong, that it was like a sacrilege, he would say, I throw down my arms. I forget the Italian <laughs> word, but uh, he just, I can't believe you're going to do that. I throw down my arms. And, uh, non ne posso più. Basso le armi. <laughs> there you go. I don't want anybody to throw down their arms when I'm enjoying their <laughs> food. But I do uh, think it's important for us travelers to recognize that. For instance, I love to go to Liguria and the Cinque Terre, and that's the home of pesto. And you can have beautiful pesto on any number of things, but when it comes to pasta, there's one pasta that's kind of designed for it. What is it called? Trophy? Trophie, T-R-O-F-I-E, but also linguine could work, but uh -huh. trophie. Now, why would trophie be good? Why, why would that matter as opposed to just, you know, some spaghetti? Trophie were born when the women who made fresh pasta would rub their hands together, and what was left on their hands were these little curls that would just fall to the ground. You don't waste anything in Italy. And therefore, they would pick up these curls, and they found that they perfectly matched the pesto. Nice. Well, I can I can close my eyes and see a beautiful bowl of pasta, and it is always trophia with that beautiful glistening pesto, and it's just so right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin, and Fred is my partner in our newest book called Italy for Food Lovers. The book is just out. Fred also hosts a live arts and culture interview show on the Idagio platform. It's Fred Plotkin on Fridays, and it's Fridays at 2 o'clock Eastern Time. Fred, I'd love to take a little tour around Italy now through the lens of a pasta lover. I know every region has its own pride, and people, as a matter of waving the flag of their region, will, will drink the wine of that region, and I would imagine they slurp the pasta of that region. Can you give me a couple of regions that have a pasta that we should be aware of? 
Well, almost all of them. And we were talking about Liguria, and yes, pesto is fantastic, but I want to point people to pansotti, which mean little pot-bellied pasta. They're filled pasta, but they're filled with herbs mm. and greens. Mm. This is completely vegetarian. And the sauce that goes on it is a walnut sauce. And this is completely unexpected and really just found in Liguria. And by the way, I would interject here that too many Americans order because they know the word, you know. Uh, yes. You might know a certain word you've always seen, bolognese or something like that. And that's what you'll kind of, your eye will go to that. But don't skim over the items on the menu, like pansotti, that you might have never seen before. True. One of my very favorites, and you don't see it that often, but when I see it in Romagna, I get it. It's called passatelli. I, I swoon from passatelli. And they're made with breadcrumbs, eggs, Parmigiano cheese, lemon, and nutmeg, and they're cooked in a broth. And they look like noodles, but not quite. The flavor of the cheese and the lemon and the nutmeg in that broth is just, it's its very sexy. Let's Ooh. put it at that. Um, then in Lombardy in the north, there's Pizzocchetti in the Alps. These are buckwheat pasta that are served with garlic, potato, sage, and a local cheese called Bito cheese, B-I-T-T-O. It's only found in the Alps of Lombardy. In Sardinia, there's something called maloredus, which are baby bulls. They look like gnocchi, but not quite. And they go with a lamb sauce or a pork sauce. Fantastic as well. Wow. Um, in Calabria, there's a very ornate dish called sagnacchine, which is only done at festive times. It's sort of a super grand lasagna containing sausage and tiny meatballs and artichokes and hard-boiled eggs and cream and tomato and cheese. It's mm. You don't eat this every day, and when you eat it, you eat it in small amounts. Hey, Fred, one place that really, really um, pleasantly surprised me was Sicily. The, the cuisine in Sicily is so delicious, it's so enthusiastic, and it's also sort of um, representing the, the influences that Sicily's had from places far away because it's such a crossroads. What does that mean for the pasta situation on the island, the, the football off of the boot? Well, there are pastas that are traditional, like spaghetti that you would have with the sardine and fennel sauce, but they have couscous, mm. which you would find more in North Africa because Sicily was under Arab influence for decades, and it's called couscousou, and you have it throughout the island, but especially the western tip around Trapani. They make couscous with fish as a pasta course. And it's sublime and incredibly health-giving as well. Boy, if you can travel armed with these words. I mean, I want to go back to Sicily now and look for couscousou. Well, let me give you the word of all words. I love it. And it's real. Schlutzkrapfen. S-C-H-L-U-T-Z-K-R-A-P-F-E-N. This now, is I know pasta. where that must be from because that's uh, way, way up in the north, the Alto Adige. The Alto the, Adige. In, in fact, the people who say Schlutzkopfen correctly would call the Alto Adige the Sud Tyrol. Sud Tyrol. But, you know, Schlutzkopfen are alpine ravioli, and they contain sauerkraut, potato, and herbs, and they're served in a, in a sauce of alpine butter. They're a heaven. Say it again. Really, really... Say it again in your most romantic German accent. Schlutzkrapfen, bitte. <laughs> Schlutzkrapfen, haben bitte. Mercy, yes, Schlutzkrapfen, yes. Fred Plotkin is our guide to the nearly endless variety of pasta that you'll find in Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. 
There's more on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, Fred, it's so fun talking to you about something so basic that we can learn so much about pasta. The big question for so many of us, how do you twirl your pasta like an Italian? Very. This is important, and I've taught this for decades. You take your fork in your usable hand, and you push the pasta to the far side of the plate, not in front of you, because then it gets on your beautiful Italian shirt or dress. So you push it to the far side, you twirl, you lift the fork so that any noodles that don't belong there will fall off, and then you move the fork directly to the mouth, close the mouth, and chew, and savor. Fred Plotkin, you are a natural teacher and enthusiast for all you love about Italian culture, and a big part of that is the food. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise, and thanks for partnering with me in our new book. It's called Italy for Food Lovers. Buon appetito, Fred. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Rick. You can find out more about my collaboration with Fred on the book Italy for Food Lovers. There's a link from this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Fred's also well-known as an authority on opera. He tells us how he used to prepare a nourishing pasta dish for Luciano Pavarotti after he'd perform in New York. It's in a web extra to today's show that you can hear on our website. Next, get acquainted with a rustic island that even comes with an ancient pyramid. Jeff Biggers takes us to Sardinia on Travel with Rick Steves. The Italian island of Sardinia is both mysterious and enchanting. While it's a hot spot for global jet-setters for its Mediterranean sunshine and fine beaches, beyond its resort beaches, it's definitely off the beaten path with a vast and traditional interior that rewards the adventurous traveler with rustic charms. Jeff Biggers has written a fascinating book on Sardinia that reads like a novel as well as a guidebook in disguise to introduce us to Italy's second island. He joins us today to share why he's so enamored with this Vermont-sized island about 100 miles off the coast of mainland Italy. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. It's a real pleasure. Boy, you know, Sardinia is part of Italy, but it really is isolated from Italy, isn't it? I mean, we know about Sicily, and it's just, you can almost, I think you can see uh, the football from the end of the boot there. But Sardinia is just over 100 miles off the coast, and Sardinians are Italians, but really, they're Sardinians first, I would imagine. Tell us about the sense of identity of the people of Sardinia. Sure. You know, you're really talking about uh, an ancient, ancient civilization. I, I think what drew me to Sardinia in the first place was this idea that we you know, constantly look at antiquity in Italy, and we go from Venice to Florence and through the medieval periods, and then we get to ancient Rome, and then we even see the Etruscans in Tuscany. And then I realized, you know, there's an even more ancient culture and civilization I had to discover, and that's why I went to Sardinia. And I think that antiquity makes up a lot of their identity. Huh. It's an identity both of their own being indigenous with their own cultures and, and many thousands of years of, of civilization— but also an identity that has been connected to many other countries and conquerors and people who've come through. And you you wrote about that in your book about the Bronze Age Sardinians. And I think Bronze Age goes back to like 1800 BC, right? Right, exactly, 4,000 years ago. Geez, that's a a 1,000 years before the birth of ancient Rome. Exactly. Uh, You know, you can't go any more than a mile anywhere in Sardinia without passing these Bronze Age towers that are called naragis. If you if you look at them, they look kind of like medieval uh, castles. You know, they're built with basalt blocks over a yard and a half long, and they're stacked without mortar, often for two or three floors. 
And these things are 3,500 to 4,000 years old when Sardinia really served almost as a cradle of civilization and a, a real nexus of exchange there in the Mediterranean for many cultures. I was struck with the same thing in Malta. I didn't know Malta mm-hmm. had a Bronze Age history, and it's just dotted with monuments uh, like Sardinia, sort of a, an open-air Bronze Age museum, wasn't it? You know, exactly. In fact, the Sardinians often talk about the island being an open museum. And um, I think that's how they're looking at both traveling and cultural tourism now is they, for example, there's over 8,000 of these Naragis, you know, mm-hmm. and, less, and less than 2% have even been excavated. So the idea of this, these magnificent treasures and, and so much more information that we can learn, we're really kind of at the beginning of a real revival of cultural tourism on the island. Now, that was 4,000 years ago, but of course, there's been centuries and centuries of uh, human activity and comings and goings, and you can derive a lot from the dialects and the languages of an island like Sardinia. If I understand correctly, there's even a a Catalan dialect, right, Um, indicating people came from Barcelona. Exactly. So we lived in the northwestern city of Alguero, which really is taken from the word algae. And it's this beautiful medieval city that the Catalans came under the Aragon Empire and sacked and took from the Genovese and created this beautiful city. To me, it's this uh, really one of the most beautiful places in the Mediterranean. And there still today, a quarter of the people speak Catalan, even though the hmm. Catalani and the Spanish left in the 1700s. Wow. Every time I dig deeper into any chunk of land in Europe, I realize how much diversity there is and how much places are crossroads of civilizations. And, I mean, I understand you actually lived there with your family for a year. Uh, How did you become enamored with Sardinia, and and what was it like to live there with your family, raising your kids there? You know, our our kids were in school, so that immediately kind of introduced us to families and and people within the town. But uh, I'd been in in Italy off and on since 1989, and my wife is from Umbria. She's from Spoleto. We lived for many years in Bologna. I've done a lot of theater work, both in Florence and Rome. And, and Sardinia was kind of always out there, and we decided to go for her sabbatical in 2017 just to give our kids a different experience. And I actually, to be honest with you, Rick, I didn't even plan on writing a book. But the more I went, the more I learned, and I realized, you know, there's this other part of Italy we just still need to discover, this yeah. fabulously diverse place of storytellers and writers and, and so much huh. culture, and, and that's what really pushed me into it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jeff Biggers. And Jeff's new book is In Sardinia, An Unexpected Journey in Italy. And it shines a light on an underappreciated corner of the Mediterranean. You know, everybody loves Italy. It's my best-selling guidebook, and I, I love. it's my favorite country in Europe. And everybody complains about the crowds because we all go to the same places. And there's so much of Italy that is unexplored and unsurprised. Sardinia would be, and it's it's sort of juiced up by other influences, like you mentioned, uh, people from Catalan over in in, uh, what we think of as uh, Spain. I read in your book, and it was so fun, that one of the hardest choices for you when you were with your family in Alguero was selecting the, quote, beach of the day. What was that like? What what were your choices, and, and what did you end up with? Right. You know, my editor gave me such a hard time for that line. You know, it was very true, these spectacular beaches and coves and uh, ridges that you can go and you either if you wanted to be alone or with a group or with a the whole range of different beaches you want. And I think what made me really perk up my ears, Rick, is to realize that this is it's not by chance that Sardinia has this spectacular nature and spectacular coast that's been preserved. 
It's because 15 years ago, they actually passed a law that they couldn't do mo any more development within three kilometers, which is a little bit less than two miles from the beach. You know, you're able to find beach after beach after beach that is absolutely untouched and preserved like it has been for centuries. And you mentioned that each beach community had its own swagger, like mini republics, their own pride. <laughs> it's very true because often, you know, each beach had its own reputation of who would go there and what type of people. And, and of course, there would be the, the fabulous little bars and little shacks that would serve you food. You know, the wonderful uh, pasta, for example, from Sardinia Fregola we would often mm. eat for nice. lunch there. Nice. And so each, yeah, each little beach really had its own personality. And this was throughout the whole island. You know, we started in the northwest and we just eventually would work our way down the western coast and then out to the Little Islands, and then all the way around up to the eastern coast, and then up, of course, to the northeast. And it was just one paradise after another. And it really became this joke of, we have 10 choices today. How on earth are we going to pick the beach we want to be at? After three decades of living in and traveling to Italy, Jeff Biggers started to explore the country's second largest island, Sardinia. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. In his book, In Sardinia... Jeff explains how the island works as something of an open-air museum with monuments that date back to the Bronze Age that might help you better understand the rest of Italy. Jeff divides his time between Italy and his home base in Iowa City, where he's joining us from the studios of our affiliate, Iowa Public Radio. Jeff's earlier books include Resistance, Reclaiming an American Tradition, The United States of Appalachia, and a book about Arizona called State Out of the Union. His website is jeffbiggers.com. So you've got your family choosing your private little beaches, each with its own swagger, but the lion's share of the people that come into Sardinia and the lion's share of their tourism money, I think, would be pretty much limited to the Emerald Coast. That's kind of the playground of the global jet set, isn't it? Right, and that's up there in the northeast section, and it's a fascinating history, of course. The Aga Khan uh, had been a student and... Um, in the late 50s, he was told about this incredible island where there were still undeveloped beaches. And he went and made a trip, and he as well fell in love with the area on the northeastern coast and began to create, of course, what they call the Costa Esmeralda, the Emerald Coast. But that's just a tiny section. And so the beauty is if you're looking for the resorts and the developed hotels and the five-star hotels and the famous movie stars, you can find it. What I find fascinating about Sardinia is that we think an island would be all about the sea and, and seafood and fishing and so on. But until the middle of the 20th century, if I understand correctly, the island was oriented towards the interior because historically they were threatened by pirates. And until the 1950s, malaria was a problem. So you have this wicked sea that brings all these risks and people would be looking to the interior and it really was a community and a culture of shepherds and sheep, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, the pastoral culture really was uh, very much the identity of the Sardinian, uh, I'd say, up until this century. Of course, you had the, the, the coastal communities that emerged into the cities themselves. But, you know, 80% really, Rick, of, of the island is either considered hill or mountains. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have that not just a pastoral culture, but people who reside within a hill culture, very connected to nature, very much connected to the food and, and a completely different culture. Uh, the city of Nuoro, for example, which is considered the capital of this mountain region, and the mountain region is named after Barbaja, as in the ancient Romans reference to the barbarians. This Barbaja region is incredibly uh, diverse itself. 
you know, you go from mountain town to mountain town and you find all sorts of festivals, all sorts of literary traditions, music tradition, dance traditions. Mm-hmm. You know, Grazia Deleda, who was the first uh, Italian woman to win the Nobel laureate for for literature, actually came from Nolaro. Mm-hmm. And, and she kind of represented this incredible literary movement that came out of the mountains that very much represented uh, Sardinia on the global level. Jeff, this is a travel show, and we've got all sorts of people dreaming of turning their travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. And Mm -hmm. I am, too, because I've never been to Sardinia. And I would imagine you would take a ferry from the mainland over to the Cagliari, the capital and the port, the big port on the island. And then would you rent a car and explore the island? Or what would be the best way to get around? And then let's pretend we have four days to visit Sardinia from the mainland. Can you just kind of lay out what we might do? Okay, so you let's just uh, start with our beloved Alguero. You arrive in the airport in Alguero, and you have your first night there, you know, walking along the bastion walls and looking out at this beautiful promontory called Capo Caccia. It's really one of the most beautiful, lovely bays I've ever seen in the Mediterranean. In okay, the morning, okay, i gotta gi- I got to give you more time. I'm sorry. Let's take six days, okay? This <laughs> just sounds too good. <laughs> We're going to stretch this to a whole month. And then in the morning, you're going to have a, a fabulous breakfast with uh, a special yogurt that comes from Sardinia that's a little thicker. And then you're actually going to get in the car that you've rented and go just a few miles towards Sassari, which is another beautiful city in the north. It's only about a half an hour from Alguero. It had the, the first university. And before you get to Sassari, you're going to stop at the only ziggurat in all of Europe. It's a 6,000-year-old pyramid that you find only back in the Middle East, and it's called Holy Mount Dakoti. A ziggurat, that's one of those step pyramids, isn't it, where you've got, like, different floors? Exactly. It's literally as if it's come out of the ancient Middle East. And this is the only one that exists in all of Europe. It's just one of the most stunning places for me. I used to go there often in the evenings and just sit often alone at the top of the pyramid. You know, we've, we've been in places, of course, like Guatemala and, and Mexico and many other places that have pyramids. But to find this in Europe that's 6,000 years old, they even found a well tooth in one of the tombs, talks once again about this incredible nexus of exchange of cultures that date thousands of years ago. So now we've got to get back in our car. We're going to go to Sassari, which is a really lively city. It reminds me of a, a small Dublin in many respects, a university town. And there we'll begin to see some of the amazing art at the National Art Gallery, there were several artists who've come out, including um, a man named Cusa, who has really uh, won the Venice Biennale with his, his sculpture and his paintings. And all this you can see at, at some of the art galleries. By the way, this is uh, Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jeff Biggers, and his book is called In Sardinia, An Unexpected Journey in Italy. And it, it reads like a novel, but it's also sort of a guidebook in disguise. I'd like to have my time on the beach, uh, Jeff, and I don't need to see a lot of beaches, Take me to one beach, and what I would like to do is kind of get a sense of what's the beach scene like, and, and that's a whole culture of Italy. What would you do there? Well, it's uh, take you down to the, the southwestern coast, which would be a beautiful drive. They call it the Green Coast. And there you have these ancient mining villages that now are abandoned but uh, have left behind these beautiful ruins and these incredibly rugged beaches. And they're one of the most beautiful beaches. And, and let me tell you, Rick, it's really dangerous to say on, on radio what the best beach would be because it's like picking your favorite wine, you know. And I'll hear mm-hmm. tomorrow from hundreds of people who say, no, no, this is the best beach. But there's a beach called the Piscinas, the pools. And this is where some of the largest sand dunes in all of the Mediterranean exist. 
at least up to 200 feet of sand dunes, 300 feet. Uh, and there it's a, a rugged beach. There's beautiful hotels and agriturismo that are nearby. But you're either able to be together with people on a beach scene, uh, nature lovers, or take a little stroll down the beach, which goes on for kilometers, and have a mm-hmm. basically a piece of paradise all to yourself. And Jeff, is this part of the Emerald Coast? No, this would be down, they call it the Green, the green Coast, the Costa Verde. And this is the, the southwestern part. And it's really one of the most overlooked places I find in Sardinia that uh, often people kind of leave it out because it's not on one of the major routes. And it's really one of some of those spectacular beaches that, that you can reach fairly simply within an hour or two. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jeff Figures, and his book is In Sardinia, An Unexpected Journey in Italy. Jeff, let's close it out just with a comment about the personality of the people, because that seemed to be a common thread throughout your book, is, you know, they've had a tough past. There's sort of an intensity and seriousness about the people, and you wrote about it so warmly. Give us just a little vignette about the people you might meet if you do a good job of getting away from the tourism and meeting the real salt-of-the-earth Sardinians. Sure. You know, what I find is that uh, the Sardinians truly welcome travelers, and they always have. In fact, there's even a village that has a festival for foreigners every year. You know, Rick, this is what Charles Dickens said. Is he said, every Sardinian is a natural-born poet. And I found that to be true, that you would meet people, and, and the first thing they would do, of course, is offer you something to drink, offer you something to eat. But then they suddenly were pulling out their books they wanted to show you, and books of poetry and books of history. And then they would start pulling you out... Uh, photo albums and whatnot, and they really wanted to introduce you to who they were and their distinct variant of their language or their cultures or their, their traditional dress or what have you, especially their literature. And I felt like this is what I found throughout the whole island, that I'm on this island of stories and this island of storytellers, and, and that my role as a travel writer was not to basically write my impressions, but to collect these stories, almost like a, mm-hmm. a story collector like you would with songs, because so many people were so anxious to to speak about where they came from and really what set them apart. You know, that fabulous diversity that you talked about really becomes clear because you do go from the coastal cities that have had much more of an influence of outsiders to the interior where who have been allowed to create their own cultural traditions. And everybody is very much open to discussing this in, in whatever language that they can to manage to, to communicate with you and tell you about it. That sounds like the best souvenir from a Sardinian experience. Oh, you, you truly, you take home a story with you. And I think this is the, the Sardinia blues, the Mal di Sardinia, that the writer uh, Marcello Serra was writing about, is that you go and you have these experiences, and then you go home and you just keep thinking about these incredible stories and these incredible people, wow. and you want to go back. Jeff Biggers, thanks for writing In Sardinia, and thanks for taking a few minutes to introduce us who know know so little about Sardinia, an island filled with people who have a story to share and, and people who would love to share that story. Thanks again, Jeff. Thank you. It's a real honor to be on your program. Jeff Biggers tells us where to enjoy the pastoral culture and cuisine of Sardinian shepherds. He also recommends a centuries-old festival of beauty and tells us how the ancient polyphonic songs of the tenor define the island. 
It's in a web extra with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Guides from Italy take your calls next at 877-333-RICK as they tell us what to look for to find the very best gelato. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Warning, the following segment just might stimulate your appetite. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. When I see tour groups marching around under the midday sun in Italy, I always enjoy watching for that moment in their schedule when their guide takes them for a little time out from museums and historical sites to visit the neighborhood gelateria. That's Italy's version of the corner ice cream parlor. The satisfied look on their faces as they dig into their gelatos, it says it all. The Italians have been perfecting the art of frozen desserts for centuries. We're joined now by Alfio Di Mauro. He's a lifelong resident of Sicily. And Anna Piperato. She's an American scholar of Italian art whose passion for Italy led her to settle in Tuscany. They're here to make sure you're enjoying the tastiest gelato in town, too. Anna, Alfio, ciao. Ciao a tutti. Ciao, buongiorno. Buongiorno. I'm uh, dreaming about gelato. How, How can you say that in Italian? Sto sognando di di gelato. I'm dreaming about gelato. Desidero un gelato. I desire it. I I do. Just tell me, Alfio, your your favorite gelateria and uh, the favorite flavor and what kind of memories it inspires. Well, memories of gelato, they go back to when I was a toddler. My favorite gelato is coffee. Mm -hmm. And there's a favorite gelateria I have and they make a special gelato because the secret of Italian gelato is to keep it simple, fresh ingredients, mm-hmm. and it's made daily. Sometimes we think that gelato stays for days and days and days, but actually it's good only for a couple of days, mm. and then it becomes too hard. So you know that if you go to your gelateria and they're trying to give you three-day-old gelato, mm-hmm. you can tell? Actually, if your gelateria has gelato all the time, three days is not a good gelateria. <laughs> Because so actually, the, the in tour, the summer, they the have the opposite. can come and go, yes, and that's in okay. in the summer, they have the opposite problem. They mm. cannot make gelato fast enough. In the region where I come from, which is Sicily, Sicilia, it's a very, very long tradition. We are, I think, experts of water-based gelato, and especially its ancestor, which is called granita. Granita. Yes, yeah, something that you know as a slushy. What do you mean, water-based as opposed to dairy? Uh, Correct. Something that happened in Sicily since the Romans Mm -hmm. is the fact that they used to mix in summer fruit juice with the snow from the mountains. Sicily has a lot of mountains like the rest of Italy, so there's plenty of snow, and they used to mix. So even back in Roman times? Oh, yeah. Obviously, no electricity, no refrigerators. They would go up into the mountains, collect the snow, bring it down, mix Yes, actually, they were preserving the snow in caves, and that let them providing snow in summer as well. Plus, Sicily had a lot of salt harvest. Mm -hmm. And if you put salt with ice, the temperature will drop, and they will also preserving that. Your favorite uh, gelato flavor is uh, coffee. Does that have caffeine in it? I mean, you get a a hit. You get a a caffeine hit, and that's why you were such a busy toddler. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Okay. Anna, tell me about your favorite, and you're from Siena. (laughs) Tell me about your favorite uh, gelateria in in Siena and uh, what your thoughts are on the best flavor and some memories that it inspires. Well, my absolute all-time favorite flavor is pistacchio, pistachio, which I get every time with some other flavor. doesn't matter what flavor, but always pistacchio as the base. That's right. how I judge a good gelateria. 
And my favorite gelateria in Siena is probably the smallest one. I think the best gelateria in general are the small ones without the bells and whistles, no frills, very small containers, freshly made gelato. And my favorite time is to go towards the end of the day when I know they're just about to make one last batch and I wait for it to come out of the machine and they just put the cup right under it and give it to me fresh. So this freshness is something. I mean, I don't think the typical American considers fresh when it comes to ice cream or gelato, but you're actually hanging around till the next batch. Yes. Yes. There are over 37,000 gelaterie in Italy, apparently. I read this. But all of them are fresh. And as Alfio says, if there is leftover gelato and they're trying to serve it to you the next day, bad gelateria, do not go there. Would they serve different flavors at different seasons, actually? Yes, depending on... And actually, they're closed in the winter season as well. So a lot of the best places are also closed because people don't... I don't know what these people are, but some people don't like to eat gelato when it's cold (laughs) outside. Okay. But in the summer, what's an example of when you would find one flavor and and not another flavor? Well, all of the fruit gelato, for example, Uh all of the uh, fruit you have in the summer, like peach... Okay, or so fresh mulberry. strawberries. Absolutely. And your smile just has strawberry gelato written <laughs> yeah. all over And the bonus in Sicily is that, is that gelateria are open all year. Ah. In Sicily. Oh, yes. yeah. Not in Siena. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Count on Alfio to be oh, a walking yes. promotion for his beautiful <laughs> island. So what is, let's get down to basics here. I mean, because Americans say ice cream. Uh, ice cream and gelato, what's the difference physically? The big differences are the amount of air, milk versus cream, and the temperature it's served at. So gelato is served a few degrees warmer than ice cream. Ice cream has a lot more air in it, up to 50% more air. And when you have the air, you get ice crystals forming, so it can be crunchier but also fluffier, whereas gelato is much denser and creamier, even though they use milk and not cream. That's sort of counterintuitive. So they use the lighter version of milk, and it is denser and more flavorful. And way healthier. It's good for you. And healthier. Another difference Mm -hmm. is that ice cream has more sugar. Yes. And in fact, it has more calories, even if it has more air in it. So why order ice cream? Correct. In (laughs) fact, what kills me as an Italian is when I see gelateria that also advertise they sell ice cream. In Italy? Yes. Oh, you're kidding. Because they, we're they trying we're... to get the English-speaking tourists, mm, never... but these two words should never be used together. They're not synonyms at all. Let it be known right here Correct. on, on Travel with why, Rick Steves yes. that gelato is different than yes. ice cream. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anna Piperato and Alfio De Mauro, and our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Chris is on the line from Chula Vista in California. Chris, thanks for calling. My pleasure. Well, I'm getting hungry just listening to this conversation. Me too. My question is, um, I've tried to replicate the flavors and the creaminess of gelato here in the States, but I haven't been successful. I wonder if you could point me towards some recipes that will enable me to enjoy that wonderful experience stateside. Well, I would recommend that you enroll in a four-week course at the Gelato University outside of Bologna. They have courses in English. (laughs) <laughs> Four-week course yes. on gelato, gelato. the fine art of gelato. Uh, Chris, Do they have scholarships? <laughs> <laughs> they should. Uh, Chris, the problem is that the technology for the gelato is a little tricky. The mm. freezing part is what probably is where you are going to have some problems. Why? The deliver of the low temperature mm. should happen in such a short time because a normal refrigerator at home in the freezer, it doesn't have that power. So basically what means is that the longer it takes to form the crystals, 
the bigger they will be. And that is bad gelato. Okay? The faster you can froze, the mm. better the quality because the crystal would be imperceptible in your tongue. Okay, so that's why you cannot get good gelato home because you don't have the equipment to do so it. So the texture is a, the is texture. a fundamental yeah, thing yeah. about gelato because Something. it is like almost sexy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's the right word. That's the right word. You know, I mean, I was just thinking there's no other word. Yeah, it's, because you, you cannot feel the you, ice particle. You drag your tongue yeah. over it. Yeah. What about ingredients? Because Italy is all about ingredients. It's all about ingredients. You know, uh, we were mentioning about favorite flavors. Of course, when I was uh, a boy, I was not into coffee. That happens later. But what is special is that they always start from scratch, from the fruit of the season. So the best thing you can do if you're in the right gelateria, you get, I don't know, pear gelato, apple, peach, mulberry, watermelon, Sounds like I should book my uh, trip to Bologna next time. <laughs> I, I think, think you that. should. <laughs> and then to Sicily. <laughs> Thank you. Happy travels. Happy okay. gelato licking. Tour guides Anna Piperato from Tuscany and Alfio Di Mauro from Sicily are opening our palates to the pleasures of really good gelato in Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Alinda's calling in from Deerfield Beach in Florida. Alinda, hey, do you have any gelato dreams to share? Well, yes. I had a few questions. First question I have was sort of related to what was asked by the last caller. How come gelato is so much better in Italy than at the places in the United States where I've had it? My second question was just where's the best place for gelato in Rome is, if there's a thought on that. And then my third question was, I noticed that everyone seemed to be eating Nutella. That seemed to be so popular. And my favorite is actually Nutella, the hazelnut. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nutella. So I wanted to have answers to a bunch of questions. All right, Elinda, thanks for the call. And first of all, Nutella is a flavor I encounter a lot. Nutella. That's hazelnut. Yes. Hazelnut. And Correct. Nutella is this children's chocolate sort yeah, of peanut which butter. Maize, it's right. made and, with, with hazelnut also. And that's Nutella. why I ask about that Nutella, because it just didn't sound appealing to me at all. Is there Nutella gelato? Yes. There are some flavors. Is that a gimmick or is that a good flavor? Would you uh, say? It's good flavor, if you but, like that, uh, huh? but it's a little too rich, a little too creamy. But Nutella is at least an Italian product from yeah. Piemonte. So <laughs> it's a huge hit around Europe. But yes. if you wanted, you could have chocolate and Nutella, two flavors. Nutella, which is much nicer. Yeah. And especially that way, when there you go, because the that's essentially what Nutella is, yes. is or chocolate. you can get bacio. Mm. Oh. Bacho is the flavor that is made with chocolate and hazelnut. That means kiss, doesn't it? It means kiss, correct. Because there's a famous chocolate that's called bacho yeah. that lovers exchange. There you go. So if you want Saint Nutella, Valentine's. you're not limited to the word Nutella. You can no. go down to basics. Uh, absolutely. How do you know the best place to go in now, a city I, like I will tell. Place? I will tell you how to search for the good gelato. When I lead tours, I warn tour members to stay away from this humongous hills of gelato that you see on the main streets in Rome and Florence. The natural gelato, the original, the authentic, genuine, cannot stand that position. The gelato to be that tall over the container must be pumped in fat. And that is not natural gelato. We're getting closer to the ice cream we were talking before. In order for it to be exposed to the air. Because 
from an advertising point of view, you see a mountain of purple and green yeah, and brown. Correct. Well, and... just imagine it's 100 Fahrenheit. You are in June in Rome. Right. And you see that. It's like seeing an oasis on a desert. So you, you go there. Yeah. You think you're getting a real thing, but it's not. Okay, so that's just to catch your eyes. And but the color a, also is... Co- correct. So what about the color? Well, when you see bright blue gelato that's piled this high and it's smurf flavored you should stay away from it <laughs> so you want natural colors you want it not stacked high but even low with a lid on Correct. it I, yes. I, I see a lot of places uh, have a uh, lid absolutely. on it when you see pistachio or pistachio mm-hmm. which is bright green you run opposite direction exactly. from it yes what i always <laughs> say to people is in nature bright color are usually a sign of danger except for strawberries <laughs> The strawberry gelato can be quite bright. If okay, it's very, very it's fresh. good to know that exception. Correct. Mint <laughs> is never green. Mint is white. Mint is white. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, shape of gelato, flat, right. possibly covered with the lid, color, and then you can see if a gelato was freshly made or not, because the freshly made, as you were talking before, is kind of, it looks smooth and inviting and very soft. I find that the young generation of local people know where the good gelato is. And yes. every year there's yeah. a different place that has the long line, Correct. especially in the Correct. evening. Is that a good sign if you see the kids lining up, or is that just because it's a popular place? It usually is a good sign. Okay. But uh, something that I think everybody should be aware of between, you know, difference between the lifestyle in U.S., lifestyle in Italy, U.S. has big brands. Mm-hmm. And all of those big brands... You can find all of them everywhere you go from east to west coast. Right. Italy instead, we have so many little gelateria. They are family run. It's not a chain. You need to live there a little bit and somehow become local. And then you will have this universe that opens in front of you to and find all of the favorite spots. Yeah. Now, we're talking about family, mom and pops and everything, but what I see in all over Europe, popping up like Starbucks on the main corner, is Grom, G-R-O-M. Grom, I have a love-hate relationship with Grom because I'm very happy that this company was started by some 20-somethings from Turin, which is where I lived for almost two years, Mm -hmm. and uh, they wanted to get back to the original way of producing gelato because the founder of the slow food movement, which is from Piemonte, Mm -hmm. uh, said gelato is just not what it used to be. So these young entrepreneurs, they decided to make... Make gelato the way it used to be made. And their flagship store is in Turin, right by the main train station. They have another one. There's one in New York City. There's one in Paris. There's one in Tokyo. But if I couldn't defend them, they have their own farm in Piemonte, and they grow all their own fruits, and they make their own flavors, and they send out three times a week these flavors to their shops all over Italy. So, so has, has bigness uh, hurt their, their ethic? No, it has not okay. yet. But you mentioned they're in Tokyo, so you're saying if you want to get good Italian gelato outside of Italy, you should go to Grom. Is that what you're suggesting? It's a good compromise. Yes. It's a good compromise between a franchising and a good quality product. Mm, Yes. There's one in New York City, a bit closer. So, uh, And another question Elinda had was, why is it better in Italy? Is it possible to find good? Is it just a matter of having the gear and the ingredients? Well, what you need to do is just getting the right ingredients first and then the right technology. Mm-hmm. All right. And then you have to have a certain consumption and you keep it fresh. Elinda, thanks so much for your call and happy gelato eating. Bye I'm now. I'm looking forward to gelato three times a day as they recommend it. Absolutely. <laughs> happy travels, Elinda. <laughs> Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about gelato with Anna Piperato and Alfio Di Mauro, two friends and tour guides from Italy. 
Stephanie emailed us from Boston, and Stephanie writes, Can people with a lactose intolerance eat gelato without having stomach problems? Good question. What about uh, lactose-free or non-dairy options? Oh, absolutely. You have plenty of choice of fruit gelato, which usually are water-based. So that means they have no dairy of any... Is that the same as uh, sorbet? Yes. Sorbet is a word that comes from sherbet. So in America, I think we say sherbet in French, sorbet in Italy. What? Sorbetto. 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 Actually, technically, you should call the water-based gelato sorbetto. We could talk forever about gelato, but just share one moment of how everything is right. Everything comes together. You're in the right place at the right time with the right gelato. Anna. Well, I guess as not being a native Italian speaker, the first time I was able to properly order a pistacchio with, of course, my favorite fragola next to it and pay in lira. Uh, That was a fantastic moment in Florence when I was a student all those years ago. To get the gelato you want. To order it in Italian as well. Oh, man. I I can remember sitting on the porch of the Pantheon just savoring what I've just experienced with my cone of gelato. I can... I can remember doing the passeggiata with the gelato in Sorrento. Oh, are you a cup or a cone guy? Because this is quite important, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. is important. Well, I'm I'm a cup guy. I'm a cup guy, uh, girl, girl yeah. whatever. Uh, <laughs> why, I'm all, a, why, equal why here. Because you, you get the question at the gelateria is a cup or cono, right? Yes, and a co- copa, cono, copa or cono. There's a really funny anecdote about the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904 when there were gelato stands and there were waffle stands and the ice cream maker, basically, he ran out of cups. And so the waffle guy said, here, why don't I roll my waffle and you can use it as a cornucopia? It was a Syrian-American immigrant, and that turned into the cone. But I'm still a cup person. I'm still a cup person, too, because it doesn't detract from the flavor of the pistachio. And you can take all the time you want and not exactly. be stressed out about catching those dribbles. Exactly. Not to worry about the dribbles. Well, the exactly. only difference is that usually Italians prefer a cono because you can eat a cono with one hand, and you can do a hand gesture with the other. Oh, that's exactly. if you're Italian, with a you have cup, to do that. You cannot, <laughs> and that means Italians they have some speech impediment <laughs> if they cannot move their hands like I'm doing right now. So that's why you can be a con kind of guy. But also, there's a third option, which is the gelato in a bun, a brioche it is called. Mm-hmm. And this, when we were kids, this was lunch in summer. Days. Oh my goodness. So you have a sweet pan, you open it in a half, and you put three scoops of gelato in it and whipped cream on top. And it's the best lunch I remember when <laughs> I was a kid. Can I add one more thing? Yeah. Sometimes you see gelato makers that they roll their eyes because American tourists ask too much. There are certain flavors you don't match together. And certainly one of those is very acidic flavors like limone lemon with chocolate or nuts in general. Or, as my mom says, I'm on holiday, I can do what I like. So uh. just, look apo- just look apologetic and do your research and keep doing it. Yeah, keep but trying. at least now you know now why you know. people roll their eyes. Why they roll their eyes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much and bon appetito. <laughs> bon gelato. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Casmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Iowa Public Radio and Iowa City for their help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves Guidebook to Italy has long been America's best-selling guidebook to any destination in Europe. 
We've just updated it, and it's in its 27th edition, and it's ready and rare to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Pick up a copy at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com. <laughs> 